0: Well, welcome to another podcast of The Art of Relationships. I'm Chris Grace. I'm Tim Mielhoff. And we are just so excited to have you join us again for um, a conversation that we love to have, Tim. And it's about all things about marriage and relationships, That's right, uh, different yeah. things that come in and impact us. And today is a really cool day because we have a special guest. Um, uh, we have a guest who's a professor of Christian ethics here. He's the dean of the faculty at Talbot School of Theology, Scott Ray. So, Scott. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Here. Happy
1: to be part of this. So uh, I look
0: forward to the conversation. Oh, it's awesome. You, you've, uh, Just real quickly, Scott, your background. I know you studied at Dallas Theological, at SMU. You, at, you got a PhD out of you know, USC and then uh, you just have been here now at Biola, I think, as long as many of us have been. 20, and
1: Twenty-eight years here. 28, Twenty-eight years. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Wow. So that's great. There's some, you...
1: something to be said for roots and stability. And
0: <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Things like that. that. That's awesome. <laughs> well, um, we want to talk a little bit because your background in, in, in you know, your, with your degree and your background, uh, which we'll get into in just a minute here, it has uh, really led you down a path to talk about. Uh, a number of things related to morality and ethics and its impact on relationships. Tell us real quickly um, how you got involved in things like social ethics and what that means.
1: Well, here's the thing. This stuff has followed me home Mm. in ways that I never expected. Uh, I thought, you know, these professional types of things would be great to teach students and the next generation of pastors. Uh, but I never envisioned that God, in his sort of providential sense of humor, would see fit to have these things follow me home. Yeah. Uh, my wife and I, you know, right when I first started getting interested in all these wild new reproductive technologies, was a long time ago. My wife and I began a four to five year journey with infertility ourselves. Oh, right sure. so yeah. Had no idea how painful that was going to be. Um, and I, in fact, I asked her, This was several years ago. She had had a bout with breast cancer, Mm. and I Mm. asked her which was worse, the bout with breast cancer, which was a double mastectomy, chemo, a year from, a a terrible year, or our bout with infertility. And she said it was the bout with infertility without Mm. hesitation.
2: Mm. I'm sure a lot of listeners are shaking their heads. Boy, they can relate to that.
1: And I was caught completely off guard by how painful that was going to be we also dealt with you know end, end of life issues following home with mm. j- journeying mm. with our parents through terminal illnesses three of our four parents we've yeah. walked that journey with and then she also dealt with a lot of gen- genetic testing because wow. the first early test for mm. you know for a genetic testing came for adults came for uh, the genetic link that
2: gave you this higher risk of breast cancer mm. so now could she articulate again we're three men talking about this so we have to be careful but so that surprises me that she would say infertility was just oh, yeah. so much more. Could, could yeah. she articulate why?
1: Oh, uh, yeah. I think, I think because for, for one, it at least temporarily, it marked the death of a dream. Mm. And the second thing is it undercut her sense of gender identity in ways that she didn't expect. There was a lot more wrapped up in her sure. ability to successfully carry a child to being female and for mine being male. Yeah, you know, the ability to father a child. Yeah. That was that was a big shot to both of our gender identity. Boy. I think the other thing that made it painful was the the, the number of our friends who gave us well-meaning mm. but otherwise pretty clueless advice on what to do. Job's friends. Uh something like that. Yeah. yeah it was and that just made it worse. So we <laughs> You know, we stopped going to church on Mother's Day and Father's Day, sure. easily the two worst days of the yeah. year. Yeah. She quit going to baby showers with all her <laughs> friends. You know, our friends were, you know, as you might expect, our friends were multiplying like rabbits at the time. Gosh. Uh, and so it was, just, it was just really hard. It was hard to rejoice with them. Uh, it was hard to be around them yeah. when all they were talking yeah. about was, you know, diapers and babies and, and just every, every there were just, just little reminders yeah. all the time we had fallen short.
2: We have a good friend of ours who, uh, same thing, had a daughter with leukemia Mm. and went through five years of just horrible treatments. And he said the exact same thing he said one of the, one of the hardest things about the whole process was what people said, yeah. coming up and saying the unbelievably um insensitive things and, and I, I I like what you said, you know let's believe the best the heart was in the right place, but I think people just want to say something and don't quite think through the repercussions and how that would be hurtful and things like that. yikes
1: yeah it uh you know we, <laughs> I, we, we tell we tell our students that uh You know, before you give advice to couples wrestling with infertility, be prepared to duck. Mm -hmm. Oh, because they, you know, we, we, you know, thankfully I didn't, but I was tempted to smack some of our friends (sighs) uh, because they, you know, in fact, they asked all kinds of questions that my first reaction was, "What makes you think that this is any of your business?" Right. Right. Uh, I mean, they asked some, some. very personal questions yeah. about things that they had no right to ask about, and essentially, I think what what hurts so badly was that we what we heard through their comments was this sort of this statement of you know thank God it's you and not us that're dealing with this. Wow. Well, nobody ever said that right. directly, right. but right. that's right. you know the, sort of the, that's ooh, ooh. what these pious platitudes generally <laughs> are trying to communicate.
2: We have a principle in Calm called feed forward. As much as possible, anticipate the effects of your communication. And when the Proverbs say, life and death is in the power of the tongue, to as much as possible, anticipate w- what will be this person's reaction to what I'm about to say. But that's hard. That's a discipline It to is. Do. Well, it
1: is. And I think, you know, I think what we recognize that you know, so much of the pain of this caught us off guard, too. Now we weren't prepared for that.
2: Yeah, yeah,
1: I mean, nobody told us this is what you ought to expect. Uh, and I suspect, you know, I probably said some of those things to other mm, infertile yeah. couples, just because, I, you know, I, no, you know, when people, when I tell people that my wife thought that infertility was worse than going through a year of breast cancer, they're shocked mm. to hear that. Yeah. Because uh, no, nobody gets that infertility is this painful.
2: Boy, what a great introduction to what were some of the questions we're gonna talk about. So you have a book called Introducing Christian Ethics, Zondervan Press, which is helpful because maybe these are conversations we should have long before you get the news. Yeah, um, that's a And great many of us point. just don't. I think we just kinda hope and wish and plan uh, that this is just never going to happen. We have a, a, another good friend of ours who, um, not everybody's going to thank, don't be friends with the mule offs, <laughs> <boss, man. laughs> Bad things happen. They were on vacation and they were driving rental bikes, and a drunk driver came around the corner and smacked Floyd. He did somersault, landed head down into the windshield. Uh, when the police came, they actually took Diana away from the scene, thinking that he was dead. Was nobody, nobody's recovering from this. So now she's in ICU for, what, 10 days? And she said to me something that made me think of you, Scott. She said, sitting in an ICU is not the time to be having some of these conversations. Uh, that's, that's, right? the, that's the understatement of the year. Yeah. So I love uh, the fact that you're, part of your... Yeah. Writing is to say, hey, let's actually have as much as possible these conversations before you're in the ICU unit.
1: Well, and, and yeah, and most people who are, you know, who are probably under fifty, mm. think they're still bulletproof. Oh boy, yeah. Uh, and but people, what people don't don't realize is you might remember the name Terry Schiavo. Yeah, she had a. You know, her case was, but uh, it has national attention on removing feeding tubes. Terry Shivo, you know how old she was when she lapsed into a vegetative state? in her 20s. She was 27.
2: No way. I didn't it's realize the last, that.
1: It's the last thing she expected. <laughs> uh, and, you know, we tell our seminary students all the time, you know, these are conversations that you have to have with your parents. Those are hard, those are tough conversations. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, if it, it's not fair your family members for them to have to guess at what you would want done yeah that you know should you reach the point where you can't make decisions for yourself anymore that's not that's a huge burden to put on a, on a spouse
0: or on you know adult children yeah uh, Scott what are some recommendations then uh, let's let's say that um, listeners out there are saying yeah I I've known about this. i wanted to talk. i wanted to spend some time. I, I just don't know how to approach the conversation. What's some advice you have? What are some quick ways that you could give uh, to somebody to say, this is how you begin? This, this is what you do. Yeah, there's, there's a really good document that's available.
1: Some smart people <laughs> simpli- simplified this so that you don't have to have training in ethics or in medicine to figure this out. But it's, ca- it's called The Five Wishes, and it's just you just the five wishes dot org. Really? Mm-hmm. And it's it's it it lays out all the questions that you need to talk about and answer. And it's a really good document. It's it's the it's the sort of the preface to signing an advanced directive for yourself. Um, yeah. but it's 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 really well done. It's not particularly Christian, but mm-hmm. it's consistent
2: mm-hmm. with a Christian worldview. Uh, the first time we thought about, we had to think about this is my wife and I were going to uh, China. Uh, it was part of a model shoot. I was shooting for a Speedo at that time. And uh, Scott, uh, Scott's laughing. Oh. and That, that kind of discourages me in some ways, I'll be honest with you. No, we were going to China. and um, Well, I understand that your wife would be the model for it. <laughs> yes. It was a dual that. shoot. Thank you. It was both. It was a couple's shoot. Thank you. No, we are not cutting this out, Chris Grace, and say we're going to. No, we're not. We're keeping this. But for the first time, we thought, you know what? What happens if something happens to both of us? Our kids were younger, so we came up with a, a, a will for the very first time, and who is going to be the godparents of our kids? And we had never even really thought that way. But, but how silly not to think exactly, that something yeah. could happen like that. So that was the very first time we said, okay, what's going to happen with their education fund? Who's actually... Who are they going to go live with? And those are uncomfortable questions. But boy, imagine if we didn't do anything and something did, God forbid, happen to both of us. That would be horrendous. That's craziness. It, yeah. No.
1: And, and the, the same thing applies medically for yourself. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, God, God forbid, but... Uh, you know if if for you know if something happened to you or to Noreen yeah and she was either you or her was not able to make decisions for that's right. for yourself yeah you know what what would she want done yeah do, i mean do you have a good idea of what of what that would be and yeah. you know ha- your your friend was right having those discussions in an icu is probably the worst place to worst have worst place them. yeah and that's where well over half of these take place for the first time yeah yeah. Uh, because as you know being the psychologist Chris you would know there's more family dysfunction emerges in an ICU per mm, square inch mm, than probably mm, any other place mm. that you can imagine yeah because all the you know all the gremlins come out uh and all the you know yeah. all the resentments you know all the little petty all the baggage comes out Boy. at the end of life yeah which is why I tell our seminary students you know you you have to you have to get better at this and you you can't you know you can't say that I'm not I'm just not going to go visit people in hospitals yeah boring. because it's a time you know people when mortality is imminent people are really paying attention to life's most important questions
0: mm. yeah. that's good uh, Scott when you um, as you've been dealing with this with a lot of families and couples and students in this process. Um, What's the big fear? What, why? Why is the conversation so hard to have? And- that's a, yeah. That's a great question. And I think the big fear
1: is, you know, I, you know, do I really want to know all this stuff? Mm-hmm. Do I really want all this information? I mean, yeah, I had a set, sitting across the coffee table from a couple. They were in their probably early thirties. They were just just starting to talk about having a family, and he has a history of Huntington's disease in his family, which is, which is a terrible degenerative neurological mm-hmm. disease mm. whose symptoms don't usually onset until you're in your late 30s or 40s. Mm. So you have a completely normal life until you're about 35 or 40, and then you start progressively falling apart neurologically. Oh. It's, just, it's an awful way to go. Well, this guy, his dad was in his 60s and had shown no symptoms. And so they thought, wait, we're in the clear because Mm. the gene had skipped the generation. So they were just talking about starting a family. And when he gets a call from his dad, who's 62 at the Mm. time, and says, I just started showing symptoms. And so now he's got to face the question, do I get tested myself? Oh, sure. Which he's highly ambivalent about knowing if he's got a a genetic ticking time bomb. Mm. But he's also got to think about his wife now. What do we do about starting a family where there's a 50-50 chance yeah. of passing on yeah. Yeah. this gene? And she made, she made a very interesting statement. She said, I don't wanna wake up at age 50 and find out we had missed an opportunity to try naturally for a family.
2: Mm. So, so in your book, Introducing Christian Ethics, how, what are, where do you start? I'm, I'm sure oh. our listeners, myself included, are just kind of overwhelmed. Where do we start, and how do you bring up this topic, and what, what are even the topics that we should be thinking about? I think I would
1: actually suggest that we start doing this in our churches first, Oh, because if people are only hearing about this for the first time when crisis hits, you've already lost. Uh, and you've got, well, that's not true, you're not already law, but you've got, you got a major uphill climb ahead of you. Yeah. Uh, I, I think if we had some discussion about this in our churches, if, if the, the preaching and teaching we would do about, say, say for example, whenever, whenever we talk about resurrection and eternity, mm. we also make some application to how we approach the end of life. Yeah. I and mean, because that's a pretty relevant application it seems to me and it's cyclical and it's it is.
2: cyclical with the calendar yeah.
1: Of, yeah well i know we talk about resurrection eternity at least one time a year yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah hopefully more than that yeah um, but i think with with families i think we we try to do this as proactively as we can mm-hmm. now hospitals have a good they have a good regimen every time you're admitted to the hospital they have to give you information about an advanced directive right which sometimes is not great timing. The last time my wife was in the hospital was to deliver our third child, uh. and they gave her that information. I said, "I, this is really bad timing on this. so I think we'll pass." Uh, but you know, before you know, before crisis hits, and it and what it, in my view what it takes is creating a hypothetical scenario that a person could easily find himself or herself in, mm. like your friend. Yeah, uh, you know god forbid but you know uh, you know w- what would happen if you know if you had a stroke mm. you know, or you know you found out you had a you know had a terminal diagnosis of cancer mm. you know then i think it's it's you're behind the eight ball when you have that discussion right. so right. i would what i've tried to do with my with my own wife is we've said you know i've tried to have that conversation you know if i lost the ability to make decisions for myself uh, here's what I want and don't Here's what's important to me. Yeah, And she's done the same thing. Um, yeah.
0: Uh, Scott, Tim n- and I both work... Ne- next
1: step up. is actually to write it down. Yeah. Yeah, good. that's good. Good, yeah. that's right. Yeah.
0: Uh, Tim and I both do a lot of uh, premarital counseling with young couples. Uh, they're in relationships. These are hard and heavy topics, but of course it's very important to have them along with a number of other topics. Let me ask you this. When... When we're out there talking with young couples, what do they need to keep in mind uh, when it comes to even family issues, in-laws, uh, the concerns that they might share that might be different about the way they see the world? But when, when are there any red flags? When when someone hides from this, they're obviously dealing with things that they're scared about. This isn't a normal, everyday kind of thing that you're going to talk with somebody but are there any red flags or anything that should worry you that you see in somebody when it comes to these issues? Well, I think if they're just, you know, if they're just not communicative about
1: it, you know, if they just refuse to talk about them. Even go there. Yeah. I'm not
2: even going to go there. Yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. And, and they can give a variety of seemingly plausible reasons for it, you know. But take, take, for example, I suspect a lot of couples that you're dealing with are a little bit older when they're getting married. For the first time, mm, it's all over the map. Yeah, it really but, but is. Even, but say, say you have couples who are in their late twenties, early thirties, when they're getting married for the first, or 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 maybe maybe not for the first time, but for anticipating having children for the first time. Yeah. Uh, that discussion about you know what will you do if you have difficulty conceiving yeah. mm-hmm. is a really important question to raise because yeah. uh, you know nobody ever talked to us about that. I think I think most couples assume that once you stop using birth control, within a month or two, you know, jackpot. Uh, the the average time it takes a couple to conceive after stopping birth control is six months, mm-hmm. and, mo- and there's no infertility clinic that will even talk to you mm-hmm. until you've been trying for a year. Oh wow! Yeah. So you know, most couples think after two or three months and nothing happens, they're starting to panic. And I mean, at the least they need to know at that point, just you know, calm down, you know, there's nothing to be alarmed about until you've been trying for a lot longer than this. But, um, and then I think couples, you know, couples need to know you, know, you will probably end up being caretakers for one or more yeah. of your parents. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and
2: there's such a hubris with young couples. So I'm thinking of the young couples that we do premarital counseling with, they've got it all mapped out <clears throat> we're gonna. We're not gonna have kids for the first three to five years because we're on birth control, and we're going to get my education out of the way. We're going to do this, 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 and then once that's done, we start our family. And we always say to them, "Okay, well, hang on. One, uh, there's a lot of people who um, are parents because they thought birth control was, you know, that was a done deal the first three to five years, and and there's surprises, and you need to be prepared for that. When you get married, you need to be prepared for having kids." Second, when you get off of birth control, uh, your assumption is okay, now we're off and running. And so on both ends, we have to just say, you know what? Life is full of twists and turns and surprises and heartbreaks. So don't just think that everything's nice, neat, and mapped out.
1: Yeah, there's a, there's a little bit of playing God in that. Yeah. And absolutely. assuming control that, uh, you know, have, having a bout
2: with infertility. Makes you realize how little control you actually have over this. And we've had that conversation on the playing God on the back end. So Nora and I have had these conversations um, about the tail end because you watch a movie, all this kind of you know life. Are, are we yeah. gonna yeah. remove uh, the tubes or whatever? Norrin and I are radically different. Radically different. I'm like, and I, I just I do not want to artificially. Be hanging in there. I just don't. If there's no chance of me getting better, then I just, I just don't want that. I don't want the kids to see me that way. I don't want you to have to go through that. I just don't want that. Noreen's like, I, I want to. Hey, I want to be around. I want. I, I don't want to. And then she says to me, "Honey, do not ask me to do that." That that was an interesting conversation. We had this epiphany. Do not. I can't be the one who says, "Yeah, we're gonna." We're going to stop yes yeah, It's
1: actually not in your interest to have her do that.
2: Right. Oh, so so part of that would be then we, you can legally select somebody to be the decision oh, yeah. maker?
1: Oh, yeah. That's part of advanced directive. Okay. You know, they, if you don't select someone, they'll assume that there's a pecking order that they assume, and your spouse is first. But uh, you, know, it, you wouldn't be the first whose spouse doesn't have the of course, stomach of course, yeah. to do what... You think you want you want, um, and you know you you definitely want to <laughs> you
2: want to get that sorted out. See, that's great, man. That's just great to hear. That's good, uh, Chris. And it, will you be my gladly <laughs> <laughs> <And that, laughs> done done? done. <laughs> and that's that's
1: not that's not a slam on your spouse, right? No, oh
2: no, they're too close to it. Yeah, oh,
0: they're too yeah, close. yeah absolutely, yeah. Scott, in the in a book also coming out another one uh, called Moral Choices. Uh, the impact of that book has been great. I mean, it's now in its fourth edition. You're working on it. When it comes to um, things that impact relationships and marriages, tell me about why is that book so, so important? F- you know, f- for this generation and for this time, and these choices that we're making. What what do you see as your key there for couples and for people who are in relationships?
1: Well, it just I think part of it is that the the, the landscape for sexuality mm-hmm. both inside and outside of marriage has changed so dramatically in the last couple of years mm-hmm. that helping couples navigate where culture's headed mm-hmm. on this you know we we used to say that uh, you know the sexual revolution is over oh, but that gosh. is so out of date that now is, yeah. you know now it is just you know the sexual revolution now has become the hookup culture yeah mm-hmm. and you know we have we have websites now that you know the A- Ashley Madison adver- oh, advertises affairs yeah I remember landing. I, 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 my, my plane from LA to Sydney, Australia, was coming in, and the first billboard I saw on the streets of Sydney, Australia, was this giant billboard for Ashley Madison. My it says, goodness. "Life is short. Yeah. Have an affair." Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so we, you know, it's just it's just not that uncommon. And when when their when their um, site was hacked yeah. a year ago, yeah. and, I mean, there were there were. Th- Tens of thousands of otherwise upstanding people who completely panicked mm-hmm. about that information being made available on mm-hmm. the
2: dark web. Mm-hmm. Uh, Boy, that's... Yeah, and that, that's your private integrity. Yeah. And then those moments are... But Paul says, you reap what you sow, and that, that is that morality moment of, hey, my conscience is clear. And what are you hiding from people? That's what we try to get at premarital counseling is let us try to bring up these issues and let us, let's bring up topics that you might not have thought to bring up. And I think the ethics of it is really important to know what do you do when nobody's watching? What is your private life? Like, do you live out these values you say in public, but do I see that in private? Those are huge issues.
0: So Scott, you have uh, uh, children of, uh, that are of marrying age, you have uh, a different generation. Uh, you're around college students all of the time, uh, graduate students and others. They just deal with this ethic a little bit differently than the older generation does. And the the things that they're exposed to in this culture have kind of shaped them. What do you see as what some of the biggest differences between what they're facing today in this area of the se- sexual ethic versus, let's say, 20, 30 years ago, mm. and when it just didn't seem to be as... In the face, or or culturally, so hard for them. But now it is almost just an accepted part to take a stand differently. Almost puts you against yeah. culture.
1: Well, yeah, you're you're an exile in, in <laughs> yeah. your own culture. Yeah, yeah. and I say the main thing that I've seen over mm. the years has been how how much more pronounced the divorce is between sex and a meaningful relationship. Mm. Yeah, mm. Uh, I mean, it used to be that. Uh, you know it was it was it was almost assumed that you know you wouldn't just hook up with anybody i mean people who would hook up with anybody you know we had very pejorative terms that we used to describe them yeah which th- those have yeah. completely disappeared from our vocabulary today yeah. uh, and i think how the other thing is how the, how the family's being redefined mm-hmm. and i'm i'll be interested to see
2: you know if how
1: we reap what we're sowing
2: On that. I think the jury's still out on that. I think you're right. There was a study my wife saw that was fascinating about um, what was the deal breaker with the number of sexual liaisons that you had had in the past. And uh, if I remember this correctly, seven was acceptable. And after seven was no longer acceptable.
1: And interesting. By
2: the way, on the bottom end of that continuum, if you had not had two, there were concerns that you were inexperienced. But think about that, Scott. Seven yeah. was within the, the margin of acceptability. That, that's, that yeah. blows my mind. Yeah.
1: And I think the the, you know, the idea that somebody would actually wait until marriage.
2: Yeah. Is yeah. Just, yeah.
1: It, it culturally just sounds like this incredibly archaic. Concept uh, and so I think make you know helping engage couples and college students you know helping them make sense out of that you know why you know the Bible's pretty clear about that it seems to me but yeah. but making sense out of that for a culture today is a
0: huge challenge yeah gosh Scott thank you a lot yeah. great stuff to think about uh, yeah these are these are questions and issues that couples face all the time single people and again whether or not in a dating relationship but also with parents and family that. Scott we're looking forward to just seeing you know a number of your uh, b- books that are coming out again Moral Choices coming out fourth edition and um, Introducing Christian Ethics Zonderaan yeah. and those are great ways that people can get involved and of course the fivewishes.org is another very important thing we can point couples to you know there's other things that we have on our website as well cmr.biola.edu and we'd love to highlight and get you a blog out there so we can continue this conversation and we're just so grateful you came and joined us today. Uh, it's good to hear your story and your background and your journey, but also just the way in which you have a heart and a passion for helping couples and people deal with very difficult issues that can have long-term impacts impact on their relationships. So, thanks for joining us here great, today, great, thanks, great Scott, hey, great hanging out with you guys. Well, it's fun to have you all with us on um, our Art of Relationships podcast. Go to cmr.biola.edu for more information, and uh, it's great to have you here. Talk you soon.
2: All right, thanks, Chris. Bye, Scott. Okay, thanks, guys.